another week has gone by. Too long for some, not long enough for others, but we're back for episode 117 of the Parkrun Adventurers. And joining me all the way from Kiwana Parkrun is Melissa Urbacher. Have you noticed, Melissa, I'm calling you Melissa a lot more now? Welcome, um, by the way. I've Thank you. I've picked it up that you've mentioned it one or two times. Why do you do that, Scotty? Well, I think because I mentioned a few weeks ago that I want to be a bit more formal. I want to be coming off as a bit more professional. Oh. And I think if I just start by using the full version of your name, that's a, that's a good starting point. Okay. How many, how many people do you think I can fool? Um, just by doing that, probably zero. You're going to have to put in some effort elsewhere in the podcast, I think, to, to pull it off all together. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that may contribute. I'm not entirely sure it's a thing, but possibly. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think it's going to be the one thing that makes you look like you're a professional. Well, here's another thing. Let's pick up on a discussion point from last week's episode. My long-held desire to ban pants across the world. And yes. It, it didn't get a lot of traction. No, you don't have a lot of support? I don't have a lot of support on the no pants think- rule. It might be because of the time of year you're trying to ban pants or you're bringing it to everyone's attention. I know it's a year-round thing for you trying to ban them. However, it might not be a timely <laughs> moment this, to This is when you go hardest. This is when you go hardest on your issues. Don't pick the easy, the slim pickings, the low-hanging fruit. Say, let's all wear shorts in summer. Make a good case <laughs> in the middle of winter when it's cold, when it's hard to... Uh, not only get out I like that you like a weather. challenge, Scotty. Yeah. I'm all about the challenge, Mel. You should know that after 116 episodes of the Parkrun Adventurers podcast. Well, we haven't had 116 episodes. We've had 115. This is. This, I figure we're, we're two minutes in, so this counts as another one. Okay, fair enough. Yep. It's a bit like the penultimate conversation we had a few months ago. Yes, well, I will validate your math and um, I will agree with you, okay. Another another discussion point coming out of last week's episode is that uh, people didn't like the shorts band, but they uh, loved a little bit of uh, henna working blue. Working blue. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, she she we we got an E rating. We went explicit ah, for only the for second time. Language. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we, we've got to discuss the direction of the podcast. Are we going to go this explicit route? Over 18s, or are we going to keep it clean, as we have done for 113 episodes? I reckon we just keep everyone guessing, Scotty. I don't think we should commit to a certain line. That's my opinion. Yeah, Uh, I'm I'm guessing by your hesitation that you don't necessarily agree. Well, I've only bleeped out about three or four episodes previously, so neither one of us wants to... Go down that path. But you're right. Let's just keep our options open. Are we going to live in the past? Are we going to are we going to stay with episode 116 or are we going to move into episode 117? No, no. This is episode 117. Okay, good. Definitely. You don't have anything else from last week you'd like to talk about before we can move forward? I feel like you're prompting me now. Have I missed something? <laughs> I don't know. Are you feeling a little bit out of whack, off kilter, maybe 
out of balance. Oh, so following on from last week, we, we just got <laughs> feedback galore. <laughs> I, I got a little bit of positive feedback on our chat around park run balance last week, which was nice to hear. It's nice to know that um, park run plays an important part in a lot of people's lives and they get a lot out of it, but they also know that it's okay to have a week off and it was definitely okay for both of us to have a week off. But to hear us say it, I think was a little bit empowering for some people to know that it's okay. It's okay. Parkrun's going to be there next week. And it was, it was for me on Saturday. I went back. I know you went back because I was um, stalking your Strava feed. Yeah. (laughs) You were actually because I didn't post that until something like 5 o'clock or 5.30 on Saturday afternoon. And within seconds you had liked and commented or kudos to me, kudos to me. What's what's the past tense of giving somebody a kudos? I reckon you kudoed. You kudoed me. There's no X in there. All right. Well, you had kudoed me within seconds of me posting it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so you must have just been. What, were you just sitting around waiting on Saturday? Saturday afternoon. Well, I had a, I had run on Saturday afternoon, so I guess I was I was on Strava checking out everybody else's run. Okay. And yours just popped up a couple of hours yeah. late, but you know why it popped up so late? Because I forgot that I had clicked finish in the morning and it wasn't until I actually went for another walk with a friend on Saturday afternoon and I went to record it in Strava and it was like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't finish this one from this morning, so I better do that. Yeah. Um, how's, that how's that watch working out for you? What watch? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the watch I wear is a bearing ceramic timepiece, which all it does, it has a single function apart from looking beautiful, and that is to tell me the time. No, that's not the watch I'm talking about, the one that I worked hard to get you (laughs) and worked hard to sync up and make sure it was all working. You did not finish that job, okay? Um, I'm I'm going to be seeing you this weekend. I will bring my laptop this time with all the different functionality of Strava and stuff. Well, it's not again. You never finished. If you really want me to use the watch, then you need to sync it to my Strava account properly. And I think you have to do that on my computer, don't you? That was the excuse last time. Mm, Something like that. Mm. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. So how was Kiwana? Was it good to be back, Mel? It was. I had a lovely morning. It was. Um, I almost missed the start, actually, because we still, you know, you'd think a year after having a baby, you would get used to the fact that you have to add like 45 minutes to getting ready time in the morning, but we still haven't. Uh, so we almost missed everything. Um, missed the pre-run brief. We arrived and were unpacking the car just as all the runners were moving off to the start line. Mm. So we made it in time for go. But, yeah, uh, I offered to take the pram this week so Adam could have a run. He's sort of getting back a little bit into form and enjoying some faster runs for him than he's had for most of the year, which is good. And I got some resistance training in and picked up the tail walker and a couple of marshals on the way back. Um, Had a lovely chat with the volunteers. So, all in all, a very lovely morning. How about you? You You were back at home? Uh, well, I was at home. Yeah, well, I was back at Westerfolds. They had their 250th event and I looked at my results and afterwards and it was my 80th run at Westerfolds. So, of course, again, I brought it all back to me 
And like I've missed a lot. So there's been 250. I've only been to 80. My math is pretty good. There's been 170 events at Westerfolds that I haven't attended. So that put it put things in perspective, but I also had a wonderful morning. You've been to less than a quarter. I know. It's not great, is it? Where the hell no. have you been, Scotty? No, 80. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> you come to the <laughs> I was too quick to agree. <laughs> less than a third. Let's less than go a there. Third. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I like to travel around. Uh, you know, we call this parkrun podcast the parkrun adventurers because we like an adventure, whether that is at home or whether it's in a way. And, and uh, yeah, I like to get away a bit. And it's funny that you, you actually paid attention to that, though, because I often just don't even look at my results emails at all, but I did happen to look at mine on the weekend as well. And it was actually my 140th parkrun altogether. But I have to confess, Kawana has got an extra year on the Westerfoldians and we're up to event number 295. So we're heading toward number 300 in a few weeks. And it's only my 67th parkrun at Kawana. That oh, I so did you've missed even more than me. Well, I've run fewer. However, yes. I've volunteered a lot there. So I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, maybe that's what we should be looking at too is how many times you volunteered at Westerfolds because that could bring up the number of times. Therefore, you weren't away as much as you thought you were. There you go. I didn't think of that because you're right. I have volunteered a bit. But on Saturday, you know what I did? I, I ran with Kasha. My beautiful daughter, and I've said this before as well, Mel. If you get an opportunity with your kids out there, do park run with them because they cannot stop talking on Saturday morning. It seems, Kasha. We got to talk politics and wow. running for 30, 40 odd minutes. And the park was it was cold, but the park's looking fantastic at the moment, and it was a great way to spend the morning. But yeah, Kasha's got this interest in politics and wanting to know how it all works and who does what and explain why some people do things and why other people do other things. And I really like the idea that I can shape my daughter's mind with my political views. Such an early <laughs> does age. this mean that you're going to have to start getting a bit educated and like studying before parkrun? <laughs> no, well, this may surprise you, Mel, because we haven't had a lot of political discussions both on the pod and off the pod. But it is an area of interest of mine. It was, a, it was a subject I studied at school and have continued to follow with Pay interest. Pay attention to? Yeah, yeah. Mm. One, of my, one of my life heroes is, is a political journalist who I've also noticed has, has started park running. So I'm hoping he's going to be a future guest on the podcast if I ever have the nerve to ask him in person. But um, yeah, full of surprises, aren't I? You thought I was you just are. about... Park run and, and NFL and American football, but no. Yeah, well, Kashi didn't want to talk about the Jets, so we talked about politics instead. Politics and running. It was I good. can't think why. So, um, <laughs> five-kilometre events aside, has, has Kasha been, like, backing up and doing the 2K junior park run every week since it launched at Westerfolds? Uh, well, we, uh, we had to cancel on Sunday, which oh, was of fantastic course. timing. Because the weather was just horrendous. Okay. So if I could And everybody picked, got a bit of a line on Sunday morning then? Yeah, we did. We had a completely day off on Sunday, all of us. And it was it was one of those weekends where we did absolutely nothing. Haven't done one everybody of those for a while. Everybody needs those from time yeah, to time. Yeah, I think, I think they're good every now and then. Just 
sit at home and do nothing, literally. It was good. Wouldn't want to do it every weekend, but once once a year is pretty good. Cool. So you're feeling all rested and rejuvenated. For our assault on the Gold Coast this weekend. Assault? Is that the word you want to use? <laughs> it's a fun it's assault. It's very aggressive. It's a fun assault. It's yeah. a somersault. Our guest joining us on the podcast this week would be familiar to a few of those, a few of you who are in the running scene. He's the man or one of the men behind the hocker movement in Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Roger Henney. Thanks, Scott. How are you? Oh, I'm really good. I'm really good. Now, Roger, you're a local of Sydney. You, you, I'm, I'm, I'll put it out there. I think you're pretty well known uh, around the Sydney running scene, but what you what you're probably most well known for is your association with Hocker. And uh, I've got this fascination with your brand. Um, I'm fascinated by their popularity, particularly within the parkrun world. And I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the story. So do you want to start there? Do you want to tell us um, how you're involved in Hocker and, and maybe tell us a bit about the Hocker story? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. And hi, Mel, as well. Um, the For those who, I mean, we like to think that everyone has heard of Hocker by now, but we know uh, quite objectively, it's a fact that most people actually haven't. Um, we know that hardcore runners are, are generally aware of Hoka 1-1 or Hoka One, One, if I use the correct Polynesian pronunciation, which I usually don't. Um, and we know that increasingly, let's say recreational runners, uh, general runners are becoming aware of Hoka, but, you know, there's there's tw- you know, I'd be surprised if out of the 25 million people in Australia, there's more than a million who are aware of us yet. Um, and we are working every single day to change that and because we're immersed in the brand. Um, it's always surprising to to realise that we're not we're not as big as Nike out there just yet, but we we are working on it. So Hoka is a brand that came out of nowhere in a way in 2009, 2010, um, but you know despite this sort of funny-looking, distinctly silhouetted, big, plush, rocket running shoe supposedly coming out of nowhere, there's actually uh, literally centuries of experience behind the product because you have uh, guys who were fantastic innovators and designers and athletes uh, working with a very prominent French outdoor sports and trail running brand uh, created Hoka because of their work actually with oversized skis and one of the designers had uh, actually designed, I'll, I'll say the name Salomon's most popular oversized parabolic ski because you'd remember skis used to be shaped like fence palings which is straight up and down but these guys got exploring the benefits of having a more curved shape and an oversized profile and they found not only were there comfort and fun benefits there were performance benefits as well so they started thinking why has nobody done an oversized profile in running shoes when oversized had been done in uh, you know everything from tennis rackets and golf clubs to mountain bike tires and what they found when they created this little brand of their own called Hoga Ono Ono was that the, the benefits for runners were all tipped towards the performance end of the spectrum. Um, and they were essentially performance benefits for people running uh, ridiculous distances over 
really complex and sometimes quite nasty terrain like you find in the French and Italian Alps. And that over time has shifted from being a, a trail running oriented brand um, that sold just over 30,000 pairs in their first 12 months of existence globally to being the number one brand at Hawaiian Ironman last year, which is obviously sort of a, a pinnacle event in extreme endurance and road running and close to 3 million pairs. So, you know, if you, if you basically made $36,000 from uh, something that you had on you in 2009 and you were turning $3 million with it in 2017, 2018, you'd, you'd probably feel like you had, had something that was working quite well for you there. Um, and that's largely come from not marketing dollars. It's come from two things. Big investment by an American company called Deckers and Deckers build shoe brands. So they own Teva, which are those American college sandals, Sanook, which are those sort of laceless, very comfy, uh, sort of uh, big footed uh, leisure wear. And the biggest brand in the house is Ugg Australia and Ugg Australia is turning close to $2 billion a year, which means that there is cash to spin off into this uh, very distinctive running brand that has grown from being two models in 2011 to over 27 models across everything from Olympic level track spikes to hiking boots at the end of last year. Roger, you mentioned oversized skis and anyone looking at Hoka's just sees these giant chunky mattress looking shoes. Um, And, and they, they started out in trail running. So I'm a little bit, Personally, I, I, I come from a little bit of a barefoot, um, minimalist shoe running background, so I just can't see looking looking at the profile of the sole how that can provide anyone with any kind of movement through the foot to, to help stabilise. Can you explain how that shoe actually is supposed to work on the trails? Yeah, well, as, as we all know, don't judge a book by its cover because the um, part of the beauty of Hocker is that they really confound expectations. So ever since that first pair came to market, uh, I think it was around 2000, I think it was early 2010 in the US at a Boulder running company. They have defied expectations. So firstly, you know, you're a uh, more minimalistly, like more minimalist inclined runner and the three key ingredients of minimalist running uh, have always been low drop, neutral and lightweight footwear. And that was very much on vogue at the time that Hocker came to be. But the funny thing is that Hocker achieved low drop, lightweight, uh, neutral footwear, but with more than an inch of cushion under the key impact areas of the foot. And what brought that really to attention, especially in the US, and the US, frankly, I mean, we know that the US is where everybody else in the world looks to see what's coming next, um, was that you had Carl Meltzer run about 3,400 Ks in just over six weeks on the very first uh, US mail delivery trail for ponies in, uh, I think it was about six pairs of that very first shoe and with no significant lower leg issues. And, you know, this is a guy obviously doing about 80 kilometres a day and that that blew people's minds. And the nice thing was because of his partnership with Red Bull, um, we were, you know, the attention got out pretty quickly. Um, he switched from ASICs actually at the time. So he'd been an ASIC sponsored athlete. And then because he felt that Hoka was the one shoe that he could really get 
that project done in. He, you know, made made the choice to switch and, you know, he's off doing Western States this weekend, which is the very first 100-miler in the English-speaking world and um, I think it's his 81st 100 and he's won 40 of those so far. I mean, the, the guy's a machine. So he he's great stock to have on board um, and... I mean, he, he probably weighs about as much as a pair of your lightweight shoes. Um, what I would say as far as you look at the shoes and you think that's never going to work for me, I'd say firstly, stop looking at them, put a pair on and see how they feel for yourself because it really is how they feel and how they work and especially how they work in motion. Um, that is more than, you know, and I, I can talk about hockey all day, no problem at all, um, but more than five hours of intellectualizing just how tricky and clever and cool it is what we can do with your feet um a, a 15 second run in hoka is usually what changes people's minds and converts them so what we've done is we've stripped all those hard structures that you probably came to minimalism because of because typically people have felt as though shoes are really complex things under their feet they've got varying degrees of hardness and softness right throughout a midsole you know you can have a traditional shoe from a few years ago and it'll have uh, five or six different durometers, and a durometer means degree of softness or firmness under their foot. So Hocker, the guys who designed Hocker, stripped all of those hard structures and weird structures and mixed density structures out of the shoes and said, let's just design something that will be very, very fit for purpose, especially where your purpose is running. So rather than having hard shanks and those sort of structures that weigh the shoe down, they started from a point of having nothing under the foot and then said, well, let's just design one beautifully shaped midsole that works when you run. So the whole idea is you're not actually as high as the shoe looks, you're inside the shoe, you're inside the midsole. It wraps around your foot in the way that most shoes don't. And the simplest way to understand that without actually cutting a shoe apart is to think that most shoes are essentially like sitting on a surf ski, you know? So they're narrower than your foot and they're flat and you're on top of them. Uh, whereas in a hoka, it's basically like being in a kayak. So you are deep inside an oversized base and that means it's inherently stable. It's very hard to tip. You know, if you've ever been in a kayak, you know that they're a lot more fun than a surf ski because you don't have to put that much effort into balancing all day. Um, the reason that Hoka works that way is because it comes from a performance aspiration. So we want to take the effort out of a lot of things that can slow you down or fatigue you prematurely. So the shoe extends beyond your foot, either side, laterally and medially. So whether you are hitting with the edge of your foot the outer edge of your foot or if you're strongly overpronating, which can produce a harsh whipping action when your foot leaves the ground, we are reducing impact as you hit. We're letting you roll straight into a nice neutral spot under your midfoot, which is where your foot perform, like performs best. And the way that we extend medially also means that as your foot takes off, if you haven't gone just straight through the neutral rocker in the front of the shoe, which also helps a smooth takeoff, um, then we're essentially taking the sting out of that whipping action of overpronation because we're controlling that rate of acceleration by having a nice, soft, neutral foam base there. It, it doesn't look like 
Like if you look at the shoes, you don't realize that people's feet are inside the sole. So you've probably yeah. just broken the heart of a lot of short runners who were hoping to get a little <laughs> bit of elevation there. Oh, you're really um, cool. Don't worry. Don't worry. But I, mean, <laughs> you know, I think one, one really important thing, and this is something that we often miss because we, you know, I mean, we're, we're very accustomed to answering that question. It's probably, you know, it's um, after sort of seven years of talking to that, that question with runners, we hear it a lot less. But it's important to understand, like I said, most people haven't tried hocker on their feet yet and they don't know that there is that distinct difference between what they see and what they feel when they actually put the shoe on. But the, the important thing to note is, like I said, you know, we had, we had one shoe, uh, say, eight years ago, we had one model and, and it conformed exactly to that really distinct, super chunky, oversized profile we're talking about. And that over, as much as that oversized profile has actually influenced other shoe brands to bring product to market that actually looks, you know, if you go to a shoe store, our profile is not that outlandish now. We've definitely influenced the space for different reasons and in different ways. But the important thing is also we get that, you know, we've, we've got a variety of profiles now. I personally like to use very different shoes for different purposes and different, you know, different runs. Um, I've got shoes that are, very low profile from Hocker, you know, so we've got the the Torrent is a new trail shoe that we've just brought in, which is very light and low profile. It's a 16 mil, so, you know, about uh, two-thirds of an inch, just under two-thirds of an inch stack under the ball of the foot, which is the main impact zone. Um, at the same time, the shoe that I'm, I'm going to be doing most of hard rock in is twice that thickness under the ball of the foot. If I'm... If I'm feeling really good, I might want a shoe that gives me no protection or I might want to wear a shoe that gives me a lot of protection so I can feel that good for longer. I might start a day doing a run where I'm deliberate. You know, I'm very much bashed up from the day before as I've been doing lately and, um, and I might deliberately choose a thinner shoe so I bash myself up even harder because that's all about driving the body to respond in a certain way that will benefit me when I do actually get to Colorado and I'm running ridiculous mountains in about four weeks' time. So, you know, you can, you can, you can go from the, hey, I want one shoe that I can go for a walk and run and mow the lawn and do volleyball in um, to, all right, I've got a shoe for wet trail runs, dry trail runs, steep trail runs. Uh, I've got a shoe for short, fast runs. I've got a shoe for long, fast runs. I've got a shoe for when I feel completely bashed i've got a shoe for uh when i'm trying to pump out like a quicker 20k on road i've got something that i actually want to suffer in for 60k and i've got something where i just want to feel good when i kick it over for 10ks when i get home and just need to run the day off you know so it's it's there are nuances and i'm sure that your listeners and your runners are very familiar with having uh different moods different needs different things that they want from their shoes and you see that in the there is that one person who does have the same pair of shoes they've been wearing for every single thing they've ever done for the last three years and there is that person who probably has 13 different shoes which regularly get turned over and you know might never die because they're using other things all the time so um yeah it, it it's it, it's beyond a just hockers of this we're, we're a lot of things for a lot of different people now so when hocker came onto the market they were, they were based out of France, they were a trail running shoe, but as you've just alluded to, 
um, you've got a wide range now. And I see a lot of hawkers at Parkrun on the recreational runner. So how has the evolution of your marketing gone over the last few years where I'm sure you came to market targeting the hardcore trail runners who did those stupid distances, but now you're in a space with the recreational runners looking at your shoes. How's that worked for you guys? Well, uh, Jean-Luc, so Jean-Luc Diard is, um, you have Jean-Luc Diard and Nico were the two co-founders and Jean-Luc is this fantastic sort of Einstein crazy genius type guy who, you know, as soon as his eyes light up and he says, oh, this is interesting and you, you really pay attention. And um, one of Jean-Luc's favourite phrases is just proof of concept. Um, you know, so when once we had uh, both the female and male winner at Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, which is really the pinnacle event in extreme distance trail running, that was clear proof of concept. And the really cool thing in that year for, for my thinking was we not only had shoes on the very first female and the very first male out of a field of 2,500 runners who've all had to complete major races just to qualify to be on that start line. We were also the, we, we, we were the shoe on the guy who ran across the line dead last about 25 hours after they had finished. And that, for me, that idea of extreme performance but also really helping people who just need as much help as they can possibly get. Um, I love that. You know, I think that, that that's a great affirmation of what we are because, you know, at the end of the day, you've got maybe 1% of the top 1% of athletes who are really, really focused on world records and victories and all these sorts of things. Most of us just want to get out there, enjoy the run, beat our mates, maybe do something better than we've done before run ourselves back into fitness, whatever it is. And as far as the communication going from an extreme distance message on trail and in crazy places all over the planet to, hey, if you're running road, if you're doing park run, if you're just training, if you just need to get off the couch, we've got stuff for you, um, has shifted from being a focus on trail and ultramarathon to understanding that as much as most people might be puzzled that there are people running on trail they're also generally i would almost say turned off by the kind of distances we talk about um, a really clear experience that i had of this was just recently because there's a uh, there's a retailer in geelong um uh, belinda i think her name is at athlete's foot in geelong and she's built up this fantastic walking market you know her store has a really particular character and there's a lot of people who go there for walking shoes so I forgot that I'd even gone to see uh, Belinda maybe four years ago um, and I'd just got back from a race in Japan at the time and it was a road race, but it was a 250K road race. So I'd gone into her store and I talked to her about the shoes and she just said, I don't, I don't need to hear about anybody running 250Ks across Japan. That's just ridiculous. I'm, I'm here for walkers. So obviously I was out of the store after that. Now the shoes, as much as they... You know, all the things that benefit you being on your feet, running from one side of Japan to the other for 35 hours, they're also really good for people who just need to get off the couch and go for a walk. But that message really gets lost the second you say, so I just ran for 35 hours across Japan. Um, I don't even mention that sort of stuff to most people now. You know, like I'll go into a store and I'm not talking about doing, uh, you know, a 100 mile or in the Pyrenees. I'm talking about getting off the couch, running around the bay, 
just getting back into training, loving running and wanting it to suck a bit less. You know, that that is really what we're talking about. We're talking to do you need to get out of the gym and do some running and you don't necessarily want to because cardio sucks, right? Or do you uh, need to just chase down that PB at your next 10K or at your marathon or at your 5K? Like, do you want to beat your mate's park run this weekend? So that that is really the way that we've changed. And obviously we love our heritage and there's no doubt that at the end of the day, if I had to choose between 5K and 100 miles, I'm doing 100 miles. Um, but we are much more tuned in to the pleasure that we're seeing from people who are running much more bite-sized, manageable distances and just enjoying it more in something different than they thought they'd ever feel on their feet. Normal people aside, I think <laughs> I could ever run 35 hours across Japan. I would want to drop that at every possible occasion as well. <laughs> Roger, just, you meant... <laughs> You mentioned that um, you are heading to Colorado to do the hard rock in yeah. a few weeks, the endurance yeah. run. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I'm, I am familiar with it, but for those of our listeners who, who haven't heard of it before and they don't know that the uh, first rule is no whining, can you know, give right? them a bit more of a, yeah, I know. Can you give them a bit more of a rundown? Oh, I, lo I love that the first rule is no whining. Um, so Hard Rock 100 miler uh, endurance run, uh, which is basically the, the, the mascot is a, a giant mountain goat's head with wild and tough painted on a rock. Um, and you don't actually finish the race until you kiss the rock. So it runs out of a small uh, ex-mining town in the San Juan Mountains called Silverton. And essentially there's a group of runners, uh, Dale Garner is the race director, who these runners wanted to put together a 100 miler. Um, so they looked at a way of basically setting out a course that goes through these incredible mountains. Uh, and we're talking, you know, 160 kilometres, running 160 kilometres uh, in any conditions is a challenge and an achievement. But this is called a postgraduate ultramarathon um, because you're running 160 kilometres with an average elevation above sea level of 3,200 metres. Um, so you're missing about 25% of the oxygen that's available to you at sea level. Uh, you climb as high as uh, about 4,200 metres at the this year it's an even year so we're going i might get this wrong but i think we get, we're going clockwise essentially so um each year the directions reversed whether it's clockwise or anti-clockwise the direction that we're running means that we're going to 4200 meters which is you definitely notice the reduced oxygen at that point uh at about the 90k mark close to the 100k mark and there's 10,000 metres of ascent. So essentially you're running four marathons in thin air while climbing and descending a 3,300-storey building uh, with basically loose rocks all over the stairs is, is one way to start understanding it. That's pretty full on. My obvious question is why would anybody want to do that? Um, yeah, I know. It's... That's probably a sensible question, Scott. <laughs> um, I, I've 
I've been really lucky uh, with running. Um, and I, if you don't mind, I'd like to just mention um, one thing that I'm tying this run to is a, a family type 1 diabetes centre in, in West Australia called the Telethon Type 1 Family Centre. So I've got a I've got an everyday hero page going for that and we've raised close to 2000 so far and I'll, I'll send you the link if you don't mind including that on the, on the um, podcast page. But um, I'm, I'm a type one diabetic and when I, I got diagnosed when I was 33, uh, so that was just 10 years ago and I had the same reaction as everyone does when they don't know what diabetes or type one diabetes actually is and, and my thoughts were, but I don't eat cake and eat burgers, what the hell? Um, because I didn't understand that type one diabetes is a, it's basically, it's a genetic lotto ticket. So there are people out there who have the right set of, or the chromosomes or genetics set in the right way to potentially one day become type one, but without a particular trigger or some unknown factor, they may never become type one. So all of a sudden, um, my eyesight went, I was incredibly thirsty, I was drinking four litres of water an hour and it was just going straight through me. So I went from, and you'll love this, I went from on the Saturday night just before Easter doing my longest run ever, which was 15 kilometres, um, to essentially not being able to read street signs from 15 feet away within a matter of about four or five days. And... I initially thought, wow, I ran so far, I ran 15 kilometres, no wonder I'm really thirsty, um, to realising I actually had a, a serious problem and needed to get some help. Um, so at that time, uh, in 2008, I was training for my first half marathon. Uh, my my sister-in-law, she'd been doing marathons with the goal of beating her dad's PB. So I thought, well, you know, and, and this comes from a background of, you know, it freaks me out to think about this a bit now, but I'd actually been up until six months beforehand, I'd been a, I'd been a smoker for years, um, which I just find weird to say now because it just isn't me at all. But um, as soon as I stopped smoking, I thought I'll go back to what I know, which is running. Um, I'd run a lot in school. I'd done cross country and track in school and running helped me make sense of things. So that's that had been my journey up to that point. That's how I got back into running and what I was really aspiring to do. So when I go into the hospital and I've got a blood sugar that is essentially six times what it should be, and I'm getting told that I've got type one diabetes, which, as I, you know, as I point out, I was completely confused by because I wasn't really a big donut muncher. I was baffled, but still asked the doctor because it was just out from the Sydney half marathon. I said, "Well, can I still do the half marathon?" and he said, well, maybe come back next year and do the whole thing. And I thought, screw you, buddy, I'm getting this done. So that was, for me, the kernel of wanting to do bigger things. Um, 2008, I did my first half marathon. 2009, I did my first marathon. Uh, 2010, I did my first 100K at the North Face, which is now Ultra Trail Australia. And I loved that distance so much that in the next 12 months, I did another 500 Ks, including a 12-hour race. Um, and from there, uh, my next goal was to do a 100-miler. So I did a 100-miler in 2011. I was increasing the distances each year. 
And once you've actually done a 160K race, what else do you do but a 240K race, which in Australia is Costa Kosciuszko that goes from Eden to the top of Australia in the first or second weekend of December. But along the way, I got picked up by Born to Run and the Born to Run Foundation was a, another diabetes charity and it was started by a father who wanted to address this condition, type 1 diabetes that affected his son in his mid-teen years and he wanted to do something about it. So that's how I ended up running around the world, which was incredible. Um, and that was when my idea of running changed. So, you know, to get to your question, why would you want to do um, this ridiculously hard run in the mountains of Colorado where you may well have to hide in a mine shaft from lightning for three or four hours at altitude. Um, and it's because in 2012, when we did the Four Deserts Grand Slam, which is essentially multi-day fast packing, more or less self-supported in deserts, doing four marathons, then an 85K day, uh, and doing all of these in one year around the world. I changed my position from wanting to do intervals and train intervals and just do every race faster than the last to understanding that running immerses us in the natural world in a uniquely privileged and special way and that there are all these moments out there we can chase and seize but only if we essentially put ourselves in, in some kind of harm's way. Um, because we we live this life that's very safe and very comfortable and, and essentially protected and it's a bit nine to five and doesn't have too many big variables. Or, you know, dealing with everything we deal with in life, we can also go chasing big challenges like, you know, like the San Juan Mountains or or like desert races or or like running in Antarctica or, or whatever it is, you know, whatever your extreme is. For me, extreme can just be running 10 hours through the night on my own in, in back country in the Blue Mountains. But you, um, you definitely know you're alive when you're doing this stuff. Alive, I'm sure, or possibly nearly dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe how you feel. Uh, yeah, I, I can't wrap my head around 160 kilometres at this stage. I mean, you, when you started back on running, it escalated very quickly over that progression of years you've got there in terms of distance. Yeah. Did you yeah. did you start? Oh, I have so many questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, how has diabetes impacted? Like, do you have to do things differently? Do you have to factor in things? What's the management plan with that and running? Or does running actually help you manage your diabetes? Yeah, last question first. Absolutely. Um, like type 1 diabetes means that your pancreas, your pancreas, for instance, like when, uh, you know, assuming you don't have diabetes, when you let's say if you drink a Coke or juice or eat an apple, whatever it is, as soon as your body detects that it's having those carbohydrates, it'll fire up and produce insulin, which helps convert the energy from those carbohydrates into something that you can store in your body cells for use as you need it. Um, with type 1, my pancreas no longer has that function because for whatever reason, my autoimmune system has targeted the cells that do that. And it means that instead of that being a really simple unconscious process that I'm never aware of and that just takes care of itself, I have to actively 
check my blood sugars, see how they're traveling, where they are, uh, what I'm doing. I have to uh, give myself an appropriate amount of insulin, which is actually a really potent hormone um, for the amount of carbohydrate that I'm taking in. And that has to be in the context of how insulin sensitive am I at the moment? Funny things are right after a marathon, your insulin sensitivity can actually go right down because there's so much inflammation in your body, which blocks the action of insulin. Or if you do just a mild 10K run or even, you know, half an hour of, of sort of CrossFit type strength training, you can be incredibly sensitive to insulin. Uh, again, if a 42K run is your standard training run, you won't actually have that much inflammation after it. And, you know, there, there's all these variables that you are always learning no matter how much you know. But the, the very simple basis of it is I need to make sure that I've got sufficient insulin in my system, that my blood sugars aren't high enough for long enough to cause a problem um, through sort of fatigue and dehydration. And I need to make sure that my sugars aren't going so low or that I've got so much insulin in my system that my body can't actually work with the amount of blood sugar that's available and ends up in a state of collapse. What I have found is that by essentially being consistent in my run training, um, training both, you know, regularly and with variations of intensity, my insulin dependence, the amount of insulin that I need to take in comparison to let's just say, you know, an everyday diabetic who's not doing anything particularly extreme and probably isn't doing much personal training of their own, uh, my levels that I take are about a quarter of what most um, non-athletic, non-active type ones are taking. And the other good thing that I've noticed is that I can function at blood sugar levels low enough to put other diabetics on the floor in a seizure because I think my body is so used to the processes of energy conversion and energy storage being very dynamic, um, that my body essentially works as its own first aid kit. So our doctors are going to start prescribing ultra marathons to diabetics to help them manage it in the future? Are you, you know a, some kind of science project for someone? Run. They just need park run. If, they, if they're like, a, you know, if you're a type one out there, just go and do your park runs on Saturday, train for your park runs, do some strength, alternate days, do some running alternate days. You know, as long as as long as you don't have any 24-hour period where you're completely inactive, um, then then you should be, you know, in a lot better condition than you might be otherwise. But, yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to step up to ultramarathon, go for it. It's extremely rewarding. Um, I want to go back to Hard Rock before we wrap up there, Roger. Um, there's not many spots open. Did you have to qualify or did you get lucky in the lottery? How did you come about getting entry into this uh, crazy event? Yeah, I, um, I, I got very lucky. Uh, so you need, uh, you need a qualifier. So you need to have done um, an, an approved and uh, similarly, or I mean, the interesting thing is there's really nothing that similar to Hard Rock, but you need to have done a, a tough mountain race to get a qualifier. So my 2016 Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc 100-mile finish counted as my qualifier, which meant that I could go into the lottery. But as someone who had never applied for the lottery for Hard Rock, I, I, a friend messaged me to say I had about a 0.22% chance of getting picked, and they do literally pick names out of 
out of a barrel and then post them, you know, five at a time on Twitter, which is, you know, old school meets new school in an interesting way. But yeah, I, I got completely lucky. Um, you know, so I, I, uh, I, I was actually in the last five people drawn out of, out of, I think 145 or 150 runners. So lucky or unlucky either way, depending how you look at it. I feel like I'm lucky, but I'm sure you don't necessarily agree. <laughs> I think you're incredibly lucky. Like, I don't think I could ever be able to do that. Um, the training alone would put me off, but uh, it's something that I definitely aspire to. I think most people do. Um, so, yeah, I definitely count you in the lucky bucket this time around. I think, I mean, the funny thing is that okay, if, if you look at it, um, Mm. Let, okay, let's say if you've never if you've never spoken English, you know, if if you come from a different language background, then people talking fluently in English is going to be intimidating, and you're probably not going to feel like, hmm, that sounds like something I want to do. But you know, you gradually uh, you get your building blocks of language, you start to learn structure, then you pick up some vocabulary, uh, then you start to have some casual back and forth conversations and and what you know soon in five or six years you're writing essays and feeling quite good about things and I think that that is what ultramarathon is very much like you know if you look at the training uh sort of volumes and terrain and sort of things that we do um then it's you know I know how I thought I asked all the same questions when somebody first said that they'd done a 100k race I was like what, what do you eat? Do you sleep? Like, is it all in one go? And, and all those sort of things that everybody asks, they're, they're pretty standard questions. But then once you're doing it, as you start to assimilate it, it, for me, it's, you know, it's similar to the type one diabetes management. When you've got to do type one diabetes, where you're thinking in terms of um, how much insulin do I take with this amount of carbohydrate? How long will that be active for? What happens if I have to do anything in between? What if I get a sudden phone call and have to run across town? What are my activity levels going to do? Do I have an emergency sugar on me in case I need it so that I can basically sort myself out and stay conscious? Like that can be, that that's quite intimidating. But then as you go out and you practice and you train and you make mistakes and you learn from those and you assimilate that learning into what you do and then you go and make different mistakes and you learn from those too. Um, it, it becomes something you really look forward to because it is, it is so rewarding. Um, so once you, you know, I think it's just like basic running, you know, any, any runner has been injured. There's no doubt about it. Any runner has had an injury that's put them on the couch for two or three weeks and they felt really sorry for themselves. And when they get back to running, they're not running at the level that they perceive they should be. And that feels punishing in a way. I think that you just need to let go of your preconceptions. So you need to let go of any expectation that I'm going to run this far, this fast, or I'm going to feel good for this long, or I'm probably not going to throw up, or this isn't going to hurt. Like if you let go of all your expectations and you let go of your preconceived idea of, well, I've got, you know, this is my 5K time, so I should be doing a marathon in this time. If you let go of all of those things and just literally take it a step at a time, because that at the end of the day is the only thing that you can really do anything about, then it becomes rewarding enough to want to keep doing more of it. Uh, a good friend, uh, Paul Every, who, you know, I love Paul. I mean, Paul is the guy who first opened my eyes to the fact that people were doing 100-mile runs and 150-mile runs. Uh, this is a guy who ran from Perth to Sydney in the Trans-Australia Marathon. You know, like, 
he, he ran acro- literally across the whole country, does multiple Ironmans. And the way that he puts it, I love, and I think it applies to all of us, whatever we're doing, at, at whatever level we're doing it. And that is that, and, you know, it's particularly true of ultramarathon, but I think it's true of anything, which is that you cannot focus on the goal. You have to focus on the process because the beauty of that, everything flows from that. You focus on the process, you focus on what's in front of you and the goal will be delivered as long as you're focusing on the process in the right way. But once you focus on the goal uh, and you feel like you're owed a result or you have to get there because it's the only way this is going to turn out, you forget to pay attention to the steps you've literally got to take to get there. This is all excellent advice for life. I do love your uh, analogies, Roger. Next time I need an analogy, I'm going to come to you. You know, hokers are the kayak of shoes. Training for an ultra is like learning a language. This is all wonderful ways of, of explaining how people can start from one place and go to another. Love it. Um I, I do have one one final question. I mean, obviously, Hard Rock is is a massive undertaking. It's going to yeah. be a brilliant achievement. I can't wait to hear how you go there. But mm. what do you do to top that? Like, where do you go after Hard Rock? What's the next big thing? Oh, there are so many crazy races out there, Mel, seriously. Um, you know, there, there's you can top you can top anything. I mean, you have people who – For instance, I'm sure you've got people who've done just about every park run. Um, Are they coming to park run to meet more people each week, to meet different people, to beat people who beat them the week before? You know, it's like you can do the same thing and colour it differently or in a fresh way each time. Um, I, I have a few races that I keep going back to. I know that Hard Rock for a lot of people is a race they keep going back to because it is such a unique, tough um, community-building sort of event. You know, there's a real lot of love around that space in the San Juans. Um, but for me, I've I have not had a problem. Um, you know, after that initial thought of oh no, you know, like now that I've done a 250k run, I've got to do something further. Um, I haven't had a problem finding additional challenges. You know, so. Uh, you do a hundred, you know, you do 160Ks in really hard mountains in the San Juan. You can go and do 160Ks in snow out, like snow conditions. Uh, I've got a friend who does a race regularly called the Iditarod Trail Invitational. Now, the beginner's element of that race is 350 miles across Alaska, um, dragging a sled the the adult version of it is a thousand miles so 1600 kilometers across alaska uh dragging a sled and it's in winter so it's snowed in you know so um there's a there's a 200 mile race which uh it's 330 kilometers with 24,000 meters of gain in northern italy called tour de Jaion. it's the world's first really it's the world's first 200 miler 200 milers are actually becoming a thing, crazily enough, amongst the ultra community globally. Um, and I've got I've got an official finish at the 205k mark of that race from when it got closed down by weather a few years ago. And I've got an official did not finish from the 309k mark of that race um, last year when I was just completely busted and, and pulled because um, there was just 
you know, I just felt like the damage that I was accumulating was going to become permanent at that point. So, you know, there, there are, there are so many challenges out there when you start immersing yourself in this stuff. There's a great website called uh, ironfar.com. So ironfar.com is the world's biggest ultramarathon uh, web site and really a great place to go and find out about this stuff. There's the Barkley, for God's sake. There's a race called the Barkley, um, which I think any ultra runner who thinks that they've done everything they can possibly do, it's as nasty as it can possibly be, that's the that's the race. They just have to go and, and not finish. You know, so this race has had um, the Barkley Marathon is five laps of supposedly 25 miles, but it's more, oh, correction, 20 miles, but it's more like 25, 28 miles. So, you know, it's essentially a marathon, a loop. There's five loops. Three loops is called a fun run. Um, if you complete the whole course, you do more vert in 60 hours than two climbs up Everest. Um, it's got, you know, briars and thorns that tear you apart. It's something you've got to navigate. Um, there's, there's been 15 finishes out of a thousand starters. Uh, there's a beautiful documentary by the ginger runner and ginger runner is a great guy to look at too. But, um, there's a, uh, doco called where dreams go to die. Um, which is just phenomenally good. And anyone who runs at all or anyone who's ever just wanted to do something tough can watch that. There are, there are self-challenges. There are fastest known times. There are, you know, things where people are just trying to, even if you're not going for fastest known time, just setting out on a, a journey of your own, whether it's, the you know, the 1,000-kilometre Bibbleman in West Australia or the 250-kilometre Great North Walk between Newcastle and Sydney, uh, there's an incredible challenge in the mountains called uh, Nolan's 14 in uh, Colorado. And Anna Frost, who's this phenomenal uh, ultra runner out of New Zealand, she's got, I think she's got the, the women's record, if not the outright record on that. And that is essentially doing 14, 14,000-foot peaks uh, within a set time in any order that you want. You know, so some people who do that challenge, they'll they'll do 90 miles, but with more vert than someone who does the same the same uh, peaks with less vert over 105 miles. You know, so as you get into this world of crazy distances, you find that everything that you thought was the hardest thing you could ever do, it there's always something harder, and there's always someone doing it tougher. Um, you know, I would recommend if you're in Australia. Uh, Ultra Trail Australia in the Blue Mountains in May is the Gateway Ultra. Um, they've got, you know, the 22-kilometre option, they've got the 50-kilometre option, they've got the 100K option, they've got the stair climbing challenge. You know, there are all these things that you can do um, and you'll meet some of the most motivated, happy, sore people that you've ever run a few Ks with. And, and for me, you know, that race was my first 100k um i've had the good luck to continue to be part of that race both as a runner and as part of the the social media team working with a really really amazing crew uh directed by tom landon smith and elena mcmaster and you know that whole thing you know that that's just been bought by the guys who put on iron man and people have this idea of iron man is oh it's expensive triathlons but what iron man is globally is you know, they're doing mountain bike races, they're doing marathons, they're doing trail races. They're the world's biggest event company, you know. So those guys are now taking this kind of stuff seriously and they want to contribute to 
growing you know i think that all of us whether we're running 5k or 22k or 100k or whatever it is we're doing we're pretty much at the front edge of the most fun growth in sport globally um and i think you know looking for opportunities to further explore that whether that's overseas or locally or on a different terrain or over a different distance i think that if you're not embracing that then you may be missing out and it's worth looking outside your own comfort zone all the time. Hey, Roger. You've, um, I thought we were just getting you on to talk about shoes, but I've really loved... Sorry, uh, <laughs> No, I've really loved uh, having you as a guest on the pod this week. Your enthusiasm uh, for all things running-related is infectious. So thanks for sharing some of that with us on the uh, Parkrun Adventures this week. No, that's all right. I've also, um, I've also got to say um, this will all be a lot easier if you have a fantastic like-minded partner um, and I definitely do because uh, Haley, who's coming to me and coming to Colorado with me, she's she's just a you know. I, I hope everyone's as lucky, but when you have someone who you can run with and who who crews you, who you can crew and look after, and you sort of share each other's dreams, you know. I was just thinking about this this morning because even even when you're running alone, I mean, I did I did two nine hour training runs on the weekend. And even when you're training alone, you're really training together because having having a partner who's generous enough to give you, you know, give you absolutely selflessly that time without expectation to go and get your stuff done because they share your dreams, that, that means so much. And, you know, I see, I know runners, I'm sure you guys do too. Like, you, you know, those runners whose partners don't necessarily get running or, or dig running or share running, and I, I just, um, I, I've, I find that I find that challenging to understand, and not not in the sort of challenging way that I, I like to find challenges. I just think that we all, all of us runners, um, we need to we need to reflect on on the people in our lives, whether it's our work or our family. We just need to appreciate how much our dreams are possible because of them, even though they really are the, the silent part of what we get done. That's very sweet. Shout out to Haley. Good job <laughs> on being a good supportive partner. I, I know when my hubby was training for a marathon, it was very difficult. And I am a runner to, you know, yes. let him go for those long runs. And it's not just the running when they're out of the house. It's the destroyed need to lie down on the couch and just be a vegetable for the rest of the day that sort of ruins the whole weekend that you have to put up with. So, you know, yes, the partners are the unsung heroes of these oh. training goals, definitely. But Scotty um, definitely uh, hit the nail on the head. You're, you're very motivational and I'm sitting here with a heat pack and a little granny rug that my nana literally <laughs> knitted for me 35 years ago on my lap, but I think I might go out for a run after we've had this chat. So thank you very much, Roger. I hope you have a wonderful time at Hard Rock and it's been great having you. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure to be on and... Um and have it in talk your ears off and go and buy some hawker or at least try some on. <laughs> Howdy park runners, it's Talk reporting in for the Channel 5 News crew. I'm down at uh, Moonda Park Run's first anniversary. 
It's been a sensational day. The forecast was for pretty ordinary conditions. I'm looking out and I can't see a cloud in the sky. It's blue. It is chilly. It is crisp and refreshing, but the course is sensational. I've got Amanda here. Amanda's the ED, Amanda. Amanda, tell us a bit about your course and how you came into Parkrun. Okay, well I started off at Laylaw Parkrun, which we loved. It was a really community-based, really friendly parkrun. Um, and I kind of wanted, I became an RD there actually, and kind of wanted to bring the same feeling parkrun to Mernda as what Melissa had created over at Laylaw. Um, and I think we actually have done that. <laughs> Excuse my funny voice, by the way. I'm getting over the dreaded lurgy. Um, so, yeah, we came by the course. I'd originally set up, uh, found a course that was workable in Doreen and um, one of the EAs, the event ambassadors, Mark Porritt, said that this area here in uh, Mernda, we could probably squeeze 5K out of it. So we spent, you know, many times walking it, testing it, doing the Garmin measuring and whatnot, and we came up with the course that we've got today. Um, yeah, that's how it came into into fruition. We did have to get council to work a few of the hills, so a big thank you to Wittersea Council for um, making the course workable. We had a hill that we couldn't have used prior to that and um, they do all the maintenance on the boardwalks and everything, so that's how Amanda started. No worries. You had the uh, incredible Mr Murphy along today as your run director, as a guest <laughs> run director. Gary spoke about community and I've got to say, look, we're 40 minutes after park run's really finished and there's still so many people sitting around talking and just chatting. It's an amazing community you've built out here. It's really incredible. I know, the community is great. We've got a real mix of families and runners and walkers and, and they do, they stick around afterwards every park run, not just today because we've got cake, <laughs> but they do, they stick around and we often go across to the local um, bakery and have coffees and whatnot. But yeah, they do, we stick around, we all cheer each other so on. So there's cake here today, is there? There's certainly plenty of oh, cake yeah. here plenty of cake <laughs> <laughs> and uh, tell us a little bit about your course for those that haven't been out and done Mernda before it's a really mixed terrain course um, we've got we run around some wetlands so we've got some um, it's like a lake I guess in the in the middle of it and that's paved we head out along a plenty road leg so even though we're alongside the road on one side the other side has got um, horses and paddocks so it's a really rural outlook uh, then we head out into the nature reserve, which then you're heading into some um, into some gravel, and we've got a couple of little hills out there as well too. Um, and then we do that twice, so it's a double lap course. And um, yeah, you've got beautiful views out over Mernda and over the wetlands from the nature reserve, and it's just a real mixture. Yeah, it's a lovely course and a really friendly bunch of runners. I got uh, probably more high fives today than I've had in a hell of a long time at Park Run. It was Love the just high fives. a really great place out here. Great vibe, great yeah. community. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well done and uh, congratulations on thank the you. first year and many more to come. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks. See you, Tok. Thanks, Tok. Always bringing back the word howdy into common vernacular. Should be more of it. And fun times was had at Moondah. Amanda looks like she's running a great event there. I've been there once, and I could probably back that claim up. It is a beauty. We must have more events ready to launch that um, have the potential to also be beauties, Mel. We do. We don't have any more launching in Victoria this weekend, but we've got a couple in a couple of the Australias. We've got one in Western Australia and one in South Australia. One of those would be Mount Buster. <laughs> Mount Buster, <laughs> named after your furry little critter who likes to keep you company when you record the podcast. More commonly referred to as Mount Helena That's if it. you're in Western Australia. We'd get there eventually. And also Port, 
Augusta in South Australia. So there's two launches in two towns that you and I know nothing about, so we'll be keen to hear more as those events grow. Yeah, hey, hopefully we've got some roving reports from those places next week. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Anyone in those states or going to those launches. We would love to hear about them, please. We've got some anniversaries as well. Burley Griffin in the ACT. I finally got that name right. Good job, says Buster. And in Queensland, uh, Gladstone is celebrating their anniversary. And two more in Victoria to round it out. Hastings Foreshore and Jill's. Very popular amongst the adventurists, smell because they love getting a J. And they are few and far between, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, because I've never thought about it, because Gels is relatively local. I've had a bit to do with it, but I've, and so I've always done it. So I've never thought about it, getting my J. But every time I see a tourist or an adventurer post, it's, I went to Gels for my J. <laughs> Not for the beautiful park and the friendly community, it's for the J. <laughs> yes, but the beautiful park and friendly community are certainly like the winning things once they get there, I'm sure. Meanwhile, I don't know about you, Scotty, but I have been freezing my proverbials off in the last week since we spoke, and I am I am a little bit lamenting the fact that we no longer have what I call a hot, hot water blanket on my bed. It's not there's no water in it, but for some reason it's like a hot water bottle, but it's not. And we used to have an electric blanket. And we, we haven't used one in the last couple of years and I'm thinking about bringing it back because I just, I'm not sure I can cope with the rest of winter if it's going to be this cold or worse. How, what, do you guys have an electric blanket? You are in freezing capital or freezingdom. How do you get through the winter? Yeah, absolutely. It's an essential item down here. And I think it's, mm. one, of, it's one of those other things that I look forward to going to bed and it's nice and warm. So Yvonne and I have this sort of battle that... Who's going to go to bed first to turn on the electric blanket? Because it's always nicer to walk, you know, slide into the bed when it's already warm, than sit. Why there don't you just you... turn it on half an hour before you go to bed? Oh, that, Either, would, that, that would require a bit of pre-planning and, and pre-thought <laughs> on both of our behalves. <laughs> so that's not going to happen. But I've got an alternative to this, Mel. Okay. And um, also a discussion picked up from our previous episode. Now, remember in the early days, we may have joked about the Parkrun Adventurers merchandise range, but I'm, I'm ready to pick up that battle again. And our, and our first item was we were going to launch our own range of leg warmers. Now, for a long time, I've been fighting with the leg warmer cartel, and it's a fight that I'm, I've been losing, but I, I think I'm ready to assault it again. <laughs> <laughs> Your favourite word. My favourite word. This yeah. is a very aggressive episode. Yeah, so You've if we... You've been um... fighting words, Scotty. <laughs> Well, the leg warmer cartel is more strong and powerful than you would imagine, and um, but I think we can take them on, Mel. We've got more listeners than we had in the early days. We've got some power listeners who I'm sure want leg warmers. Yeah, yeah. And if we can't Mm -hmm. fight them, we'll go alone. We'll create our own leg warmers. Hey, look, I know how to knit. Yep. I'm pretty sure YouTube could teach me to crochet if that's necessary. I'm happy to help you find those videos on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> that would be your contribution. Thank you. That would be very helpful. Okay. Okay. So we're making plans. So when can we expect our first line of leg warmer merchandise? How long does it take you to knit? 
Because I can find the videos today. You can find the videos today. Look, if um, let let me let me get back to you on that. I I reckon I could probably look. Oh, geez, and this is poor timing because I just visited my nana in the nursing home today. I could probably get a whole swag of ladies in the nursing home knitting away on merchandise. That's that's not like the same as a sweatshop, is it? No, it's not. They're happy to do it. If you're happy to do it, it's fine. It's a hobby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe I'll do some recruiting when I go back up to visit her next. Um, but in the meantime, I will dust off my knitting needles and I will start working on the prototype leg warmers. What Should we get people to um, vote on the colour or something like that? Well, I, think we, I think we're already asking our, our listeners too much. I think we should take on that burden of designing the colours and the style of the scheme and okay all right well i can't wait to see what what kinds of patterns you discover on youtube um all right well we'll we'll take that on board in-house then because i guess you're right we are asking our listeners a lot lately we need more uh contributions to the poem zone for example exactly we do have another perla to bring out this week however To keep the poem zone going, people need to contribute. And we would like to see your haikus, guys. So please send them in, parkrunadventurers at gmail.com or drop us a Facebook message or at us at Instagram or on Twitter. We are very contactable people. Yep. Twitter. Send me me all your haikus on Twitter this week. I'll be all over Tweet them to Scotty. Yep. He loves Twitter. And I'm not accepting entries to a Facebook post from three years ago as a submission into the poem zone. It, it needs to be fresh. It needs to be brand content. new, yep. on, on point for this purpose only. Yep. Like one of our favourite listeners, Caroline Southwell, submitted. She submitted a couple, Mel. Have you got them in front of you? No, I do not. Okay, <laughs> I do. Should I go first? Because not one, she's given us three. Okay, well, you did give us an excellent rendition of how a haiku should be read last week, so I am confident that you can carry this off. Okay. Just in case we don't get any more, Caroline, we're going we're gonna to drag yours out for the next three weeks. So I'm going to pick my favourite this week. And if we do get more, we'll do the rest next week. We're not dragging them out so much as we're highlighting them delicately over time. Yeah, just so we can continue to have the poem zone as a segment. Which we're still excited about yep. and we think is a great idea. I'm going to lead with my favourite first. It goes a little something like this. Huge end to the week, I say. Two plus two plus three. We came, we saw, and we ran. That's that a, a great one. Okay, yeah. so that's that's that's. So Caroline just did the uh, longest run. Remember that, Mel? You used to do it. I did. So that was in reference to her seven park runs, freedom runs, last weekend in Sydney. Which awesome. Like a ton of fun. So we'll save the other couple for next week, and just confirm that they are definitely haikus. Thanks, Caroline. That's awesome. Love your work. Are we going to be? Do they have to be haikus? Did we? Did we say that in the poem zone? Can they just be poems? I want to broaden. I want to broaden the spectrum here. Haikus are great. We've done two now. I want to. I want poems. You are oh, so we're opening it up to all sorts of rhyme and verse. Yes. People can use similes, metaphors, alliteration. Yes. Any other poetic license they all feel that. necessary. All that. Okay. Yeah, because I'm very naive in the poem world. You're going off book now. And I want I want to experience more examples of poetry. Okay. Not just haikus. Nothing against the Japanese, but 
we could get submissions as long as the man from Snowy River, you realise that. I don't, I don't think too many people will spend that much time on this meal. Oh, I, I think there's quite a few now that are taking that as a challenge. Okay, good. Good, whatever it takes. And that wraps up episode 117. Did we have anything else, Mel, that I was supposed to talk about? <laughs> that, I, that I haven't very gently and unobtrusively uh, led you to. Yes. No, Scotty, I think you covered it all. Good, good. Um, so we'll have a bumper episode next week where you and I will be together. We might collect some material over the weekend. But probably we won't because probably we never right. do whenever <laughs> we say that we might do that. <laughs> we get together and we just have too much fun being park runners and experiencing things so yeah we we shouldn't make promises we can't keep scotty okay but maybe i'll just i'll i'll set recording over one of our conversations and maybe that could be the podcast for next week okay well we'll see if that works but until then until then